I may begin, Stephen, by asking you, it seems as if in recent years, after perhaps a couple of decades at least, of academia in general and the humanities in particular being concerned largely with language, with structures of meaning, mm -hmm. whether they are in fact verbal or they're based on ideas from linguistics, so reading images through um, ideas taken from linguistics. And all of this goes under the name, broad name of semiotics and structuralism and so on. It seems that after some years or decades of that, the humanities now seem to be obsessed by things, by objects, by something uh, that has in fact come to be called thing studies. And so yes. scholars like Sherry Turkle, who writes on the meaning of contemporary technology, um, even popular successes like Neil McGregor's 100 Objects, uh, the book based around the British Museum collection, it seems things seem to be in the air. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that's partly just because we've got tired. You know, ideas just grow old, no matter how true they are. No matter how compelling they are, they just lose their force and we start to get interested in other things. Thank goodness. Um, so I think it is partly that. Um, uh, it's, it's in my case, I've become interested in... Well, I haven't become interested in things. I've just become... Uh, impatient with pretending that I'm not you know and it's not that I'm it's not that I'm uninterested in all the things that I was schooled to be interested in that is to say signs codes information the ways in which things are in fact always also signs and symbols but there seemed there has always seemed so much more but there didn't seem to be a language so so I, I I've I've been interested over quite a long period of time in trying to sort of get out from under that or perhaps just step aside from that um, that accepted perspective, uh, not because it's wrong, not because it's mistaken, but just because it's not complete. Um, and I don't know what I don't know whether you feel the same thing is involved in other people that are interested in uh, in writing about things. Whether there's some nostalgia, do you think, or some kind of coming home to the way things are, or? I think there's a definite strain of nostalgia that you see, for example, in a recent literary success like Edmond Duval's book about the collection of Netsuke, these yes. very exquisite tiny wood and porcelain um, and jade figures that he inherited um, through his family. And one of the things that that book is about is a, a voyage of rediscovery of the materiality of those objects. Mm. They go on a long journey throughout um, the, the history of the 20th century. They're lost during the Second World War. They're regained and they, they end up um, in the author's uh, possession. And the book is very much about handling. It's, it's about that kind of meticulous material fondling and, and living with on a day-to-day -day basis these, mm. these objects. And I think brilliant as that kind of narrative is, and you find it also, I think, in some of the writings of the late W.G. Sebald. Sebald writes somewhere in one of his books, things know more about us than we know about them. Yeah. As if, he, as if he, 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 he writes his narratives from the position of the object in some way. He wants to be on the side of the object. Yes. But there seems to be always a, a level of a kind of lugubrious mourning for that physical experience. Yes. And it seems as if, it seems as if that what you're doing in the book, Paraphernalia, is some way 
related to that, but a very, very different project. It doesn't seem to me, although you write very brilliantly about your, the experience of certain objects uh, as a child, mm -hmm. your book is not nostalgic. It's not really an, an engaged in that kind of, in that notion of the object as a repository of memory or mm. straightforwardly as a repository of, of memory. Would that be right? I think, I think that's true, and I think other people are. Um, I think you're absolutely right that, 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 that objects are sometimes there as a, you know, it's their antiquity, it's their mysterious connection to some lost past, it's, their, it's, it's that melancholy tinge that you often find in the writing of Walter Benjamin, for example, yes. who writes a lot about the importance of objects, but always, I think, with this melancholy cast, that the object is always, in a sense, somehow lost or is a, an image of something that we've lost. And, and you know, we haven't lost objects because we're, <laughs> we're surrounded by them and we carry them around with us all the time. It's, it's the carrying around of things that, that in a way, was one, one of my ways into this book. I suddenly thought, we just, we carry so much stuff around, for God's sake, you know. We, one of the reasons we have clothes in, is in order that we can carry more things around. Um, we're all of us kind of shoplifters in a way, in that sense. That's what human, the history of human attire is, at least of male attire. Um, so, so, yes, it's the ever-present reality of things. And also, you know, um, this word materiality, and it's often used by academics for under understandable reasons, but, you know, there's just something so extraordinarily abstract and unmaterial about ideas of materiality. And if you, if you ask people to inspect their ideas of what material means, they'll probably think of something hard. They'll probably have a, a Dr. Johnson moment and think, yes, it's the stone that I kick and thereby uh, refute abstraction and fantasy. But... Of course, materiality isn't one kind of. There isn't a way. There isn't one way for something to be material, and one of the things I love about the material world, and it's, I tell you, it's love for me. It's. A, I'm in a sad way, really, uh, is that there. I feel there's really only one way I can be me, but there's millions of ways in which the material world, so-called, can be not me. Um, it's a kind of source of inexhaustibility. Inexhaustible frustration sometimes but but you know the sheer multiplicity of the ways in which things are suggests to me that there's a there's a whole lifetime there uh of 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 stuff to be investigated and and written about and sometimes it doesn't come out well you know this this isn't a principle of redemption or anything like that it's just interesting and you know what it's what humans do it's our speciality things the book is extremely eloquent about objects. It's also very aware of a lo the long history of eloquence about things. And I wonder if there's a, a question or a problem here to do with the kind of language that does justice to things. Mm. And one of the, th the passages that I'm uh, teaching at the moment is a section very early on in uh, Madame Bovary, where Flaubert describes Charles Bovary's hat. And this hat is not simply a simple schoolboy's hat that denotes his lowly place in the world, his potential uh, aspirations to, to bourgeois life and so on, although it does all of those things. It's also an extraordinarily complicated kind of meaning machine <laughs> full of levels. It's stratified. It's like a cake. In fact, it's compared yes. very precisely later on in the novel to the wedding cake of, of Charles and Emma Bovary. So I'm wondering if Flaubert's technique here 
is to layer the object and mm. describe layer by layer. Um, is that something that kind of meticulous care uh, towards the yeah. description? Is that something? That yeah, I think when you're when you're writing about objects, and it's it's not something that you know I've I've ever really seriously done before. Now, I mean, when you when you're when you're an art historian, or you know, I mean, it, it's something you actually have to learn to do much earlier on. Um, but I think I think the writing about an object. Uh, can highlight the sort of objectness of one's own writing. Now, there's a way in which that gets that gets really, really self-reflexive and wound up in itself. And I, and I think one of the most liberating things about writing about objects is that you stop thinking about the writing. You start thinking about the object. And you start thinking, oh, that's not quite right for the sound of sellotape. It's does it rip? No, it sort of rasps, but it does a sort of a shriek. You know, so so you have to kind of do justice to the object, and you stop thinking about the writing, which is always a good thing to do. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but it's not often done. So um, uh, yeah, there is some, and and I, I think I think the 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 pleasure for me in writing, and I suspect for quite a lot of people who are specifically interested in writing about objects, which is kind of a bizarre thing to do because writing is dematerializing. Writing is not the thing itself. It's a deliberate divergence from the thing itself. But that act of translation, I think, often can yield to you that that uh, strong sculptural sculptural sense that um, that people often have when they're working with words. And that for me is just is just sheer joy. I mean, it's the thing I enjoy more than anything else, the thing I'm secretly wanting to do all the time. I, I don't think, by the way, this is very special. I think anyone who enjoys telling jokes has exactly the same poetic pleasure in just springing the machinery just right, you know? Anyone who, or, or anyone who does voices, you know, all of those sorts of adolescent social forms. Uh, you know, there are lots and lots of ways in which that, that poesis of language, that thinginess moving across into language such that we get a kind of a you know, a tinkerer's relationship with the word. Do, do you feel like that? When I mean, you write a, a lot more, I think, about art historical objects. I write a, a great deal about photography, um, more than, uh, let us say, painting or, or sculpture. But yeah. I, having done it for about a decade, the thing I realise is that, in a way, writing about photographs was an excuse for writing about things. Um, mm -hmm. and for writing about surfaces or for writing about stray details in photographs. And yes. there's a long tradition of writing about stray details in photographs. And Roland Barthes and his, his great book, Camera Lucida from 1980, yeah. is, is a, a kind of prime example of this in the, in the history of, uh, of, of photographic criticism. Um, for me, one of the striking things about the process of writing about an object is that moment where you, as you say, lose yourself in the object. What gets left behind there as well, gets usefully left behind, I think, is the kind of psychologizing attitude mm. to objects that might have been one way for you to have thought about things in this book, or not just psychologizing, but yeah. more precisely, psychoanalytic. It seems to me as if um, psychoanalysis would be one absolutely prominent way of thinking about our daily relationship with objects. Yes. Freud brilliantly describes 
the ways in which objects betray us. They betray our secret desires and meanings and, and intentions and so on. Yeah. We trip over things, we lose our keys. And uh, not only that, but our servants in, in the uh, psychopathology of everyday life are apt to come into the room and knock over items of furniture or ornaments and so on. So yeah. we are beset by objects in Freud's world. Yes. And yet it seems like the kind of approach that seems for you and I think for some others writing now much more uh, much more useful and more productive and more and more poetic, although Freud is, of course, a very literary and poetic writer at times mm. is one that, that shies away from those depths that wants yeah. to stay much more on the level of a kind of daily uh, quotidian ordinary praxis because that's what turns out actually to already be full of profundity yes although um there are quite a lot of people in the academic world and elsewhere <clears throat> celebrating the ordinary or the everyday um as though there were sort of secret undiscovered riches there. I don't really feel that. I mean, you know, I read a lot like you do. So our everyday lives are full of the most extraordinary esoteric things, you know. Part of my everyday life is reflecting on, um, on, on philosophical concepts of, you know, kind of, and, and theological concepts that are just the opposite of the everyday, but they're everyday for me. And I, I don't think that's, that's unusual. Um, so, but, but that said, that said, everydayness, it's certainly true, is something that, uh, I guess, I guess in a way that we've been encouraged to feel that, that, uh, uh, so much of our lives are not to be accounted for. So there is a, it does seem to me that there is a great terrain of things that we might have things to say, uh, about that we don't usually, we don't usually give ourselves permission to talk about. I mean, instead we talk about much more abstract things like commodities, whether things are bought and sold. That strikes me, I, I can't think of an interesting way of saying how uninteresting I find that <laughs> idea, um, that, that, it, that, you know, it matters hugely whether something is bought or sold. What matters is sort of what it is. Well, this, this seems to kind of open up a, a field that I think something that it, perhaps like things, like objects, seems to be somewhat kind of culturally in the air at the moment, which is a, a renewed idea of curiosity. Something like you know, the, the British Museum's 100 Objects program and, and, uh, and the book suggests that there is actually an appetite for this, this meticulous attention to specificities that we might otherwise have ignored, whether they are in fact, as in um, Neil McGregor's project, specific things, mm. or as in yours, generic things, things that have been out of the way. It turns out very often that those are precisely the objects that allow us to bring those great abstractions into some kind of relationship with each other. They're the moments, yeah. the, 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 it's almost as if the object functions as a kind of nexus through which different disciplines, history, archaeology, futurology, <laughs> yes. um, music, writing, etc., that these things can come together. Yeah. And it might be that this, the thing studies is a name for a kind of um, impatience mm. among many academics with the limitations of their own disciplines, that somehow the the, the, the much more precise and intimate focus allows for 
a view of the big intellectual picture, of something called curiosity in the sense that it might have obtained in the 17th century with the cabinet of curiosities, a mm. space kind of precursor to the modern museum in which objects from all kinds of backgrounds, whether they're natural or man-made, come together. I think that's, that, 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 that's certainly part of the, the impulse, the, the, the impulse to cultivate a kind of naivety. I, I, th I think that might be at the heart of it. It's a sort of impatience with knowingness, uh, a sense that there will be something to be gained from, uh, from impulses and feelings like, like those of curiosity and wonder, you know, the, 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 the passion celebrated by Descartes, but in, in his Passions of the Soul. But um, I think we have to be careful too. I, I mean, I don't I don't really like the big talk that that suggests that this is all somehow seeing a universe in a grain of sand, that, that, that talking about objects or talking about everyday life or talking about oblique things or unexpected things is, is the key which has previously eluded us and we can get to the big things through the small things. It's a way of somehow, you know, it's a way of understanding our, the unconscious. I just think it's something that we can do that we haven't done. And it's actually not everything. Um, uh, I think that our culture is one, certainly academic culture is like this, in which we want to hurry to conclusions and outcomes and significances. Why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this because, you know, well, sometimes you just don't know. And usually you don't know. It turns out that you're doing something for a completely different reason. Um, but, but I think to enlarge the scope of possibilities. It doesn't mean you have to do it forever, but to enlarge the scope of possibilities certainly cheers people up a bit. And, um, you know, we could do with that. And it certainly cheers me up to, to feel that there are some other things that, that could be done, that could be thought, thought about seriously and sustainedly. Um, might not do everything for us. It might not give us political redemption. It might not bring capitalism down and inaugurate a, you know, a realm of equality and justice and universal emancipation. But then who seriously thinks it might? <laughs> well, that seems to be, I mean, that, that sense that um, in the book, what you're dealing with is not uh, the, the individual object is kind of repository of narrative and, and history, be it kind of collective or familial or, or individual. You talk at one point um, about wanting to deal with generic objects. Mm. They are actually the most ordinary objects that, that one can find. And we can talk a little bit about some precise examples of those, even some of the examples that we have here before us in, in the studio uh, in a moment. But that idea of, uh, of the absolute ordinariness of the object seems absolutely crucial yeah. to perhaps this, this new somewhat adjacent uh, way of thinking about the object per se. Yeah, it, well, it, it certainly is for me and I think for some others, although some, you, you know, understandably, because there are lots of different ways in which you can write about things. Sometimes people are interested in very, very special <coughs> and unique objects. But it became clear to me that the things that, that I was interested in uh, are things like rubber bands or paper clips or buttons with a whole there's something about the collectivity of them the fact that we've known lots and lots of these objects and it's something that we grasp as a kind of uh, a complex rather fuzzy totality um, and that's very much part of I mean obviously that's part of an existence 
uh, in mass production. You know, there are lots and lots of things of which we get many, many, many semi-identical examples. Um, but I think that was that was true even before real mass production. You know, a stick was one example of all the many different ways in which you could make and acquire a stick. And I don't know quite what I th what I think about that, but there's something about that sort of that radiation of possibilities that that for me is is the interesting thing about everyday objects that they they are as they are but they don't have to be as they are they could be you know there could be variations the technical term is affordance that open affordance there are some things that say this is what you do with me you know you look at a rifle or a or a pike staff and you think, well, it's obvious what you do with that. You point it and shoot it, or you point it and pierce somebody with it. But there are other kinds of objects where, you know, a paperclip, it's obvious what you do with a paperclip, kind of. But that's not what we want, what we want to do with it, do we? We, we, want, we, want to, we want to see how far it spreads out beyond itself. Um, at least I do, and most people do, I think, with paperclips. I think that's probably what paperclips are for in the end. Yeah, that, they're for experimental play with possibility. One of the fantasies that I think attaches to my personal use of, of objects, because I carry my objects in a bag always, and I know mm. from reading your book that you carry a lot of stuff in your pockets, yeah. and that seems very alien to me. One of the fantasies that attaches to the bag, I think, is that I actually have my entire office, and therefore, because I think of myself as a writer and an intellectual <laughs> and so on, my entire life um, with me. And, and that, that sense of, of uh, the portability of one's thought Yes. is actually bound up in the object. I mean, I spend a lot of time with these things. This is my bunch of keys, which, in the way of such things, gets bigger, hardly ever gets smaller. There are a few keys on there. I really couldn't tell you what they're for. And I have such a... Well, this one is nestling in my hand at the moment. The jingle that it makes is an important part of the reassurance that it has for me. Um, I cannot imagine being a creature who didn't know where their keys were on their person at all times. I mean, that that this is this is an uncomfortable thing. I'm squeezing it now, and it's rather uncomfortable. It's lots got lots of sharp bits and knobs, but that's what's wonderful in my top right hand pocket. Pickpockets take note, listening to this. You know, that's where it always is, and it, if it isn't there, then there is this terrible gulf or chasm in my being that I'm not quite aware of, but sooner or later I become aware of it. A key always has other kinds of potential. It's one of the things that you say very early on in your book, actually, that the more ordinary the object, the more uses it seems to suggest. And, of course, yeah. the key... I think at one stage you also say that the key stereotypically is cold and that automatically chimed with me because I have a very vivid memory as a child of any time that I would bang my head one of two things would come out because we didn't have an, an ice box when I was very young so there was no ice to put on a contusion on, on my forehead so it was either a coin or if there wasn't a coin to hand it was a key because a key was the cold thing probably the coldest thing in the room at any one <laughs> moment. So my thought then would be, where had the key come from? If it, if it had come from my father's pocket, it probably wasn't cold, so there yes. must have been a place where the keys lived. Um, so keys keys are not only things that go in locks. They no, have, that's, that, other that's true. And my keys are almost always, as I say, about my person. Um, I have a rather interesting smell. People don't talk about the smell of metal, but... It's very extraordinary, but cold keys are very 
are, are very wonderful. I mean, I know them from nosebleeds. Um, of course, people on the back of the neck. On the back of right. the neck or down my neck. And I mean, it, it never worked, but, but it was so absorbing. Uh, as an operation that, you, you know, you didn't worry so much about the, the you know, the, the nosebleed or in your case, the bump. Um, so, I, I mean, in this case, there's a, I mean, there is a special, I think, with keys, but also with, with pens and pencils and paper, there is a special kind of magic, a sort of, what if this had all kinds of hidden remedial and creative powers you know that it didn't seem to have and that's very often the case i think with ordinary objects that have been taken up in folklore yeah. things yeah. like rings and hats and shoes you know especially items of clothing but items that we have about us that are that seem as though in some sense they're body doubles for us i think that the idea of the object is a kind of an extension of us as something into which we project ourselves and thereby, you know, it, it potentially transforms us or projects us into the, into the inorganic world, um, which is spoken about sometimes with a mixture of, of exhilaration and concern. I think that may have given way to, at least it's certainly given way in me, to concern with, with actually the ways in which objects just sort of aren't us. Of course, we wrap ourselves around them and we wrap them around us in clothing and so forth. But, you know, um, I, I'm not an animist. You know, objects are not alive. And here's something that I think is really, you know, this is an absolutely fundamental insight. It's not my insight, but it's the insight of a, uh, a philosopher and historian of science uh, called Michel Serre. And Serre writes in his book, Statues, that the things we call subjects, conscious beings, come into being not, of, not in being conscious of themselves, not in being, as it were, a sort of transparency to yourself. They come into being in contact with things called objects. And there's a moment at which a creature, a being, suddenly conceives that there is something in the world that is not it, Babies have this moment when they have encounter what D.W. Winnicott calls transitional objects, you know, blankets and little, little, you know, accompanying kind of objects that give reassurance. It's important that the thing is not you. Um, and arguably, if you're not a subject, if you're not a conscious being, if you're an animal, say, you never have that notion of an object's, as it were, absolute not you-ness. You know, my cat employs objects for various purposes, but they are, those objects are thereby entirely subsumed into their use. Um, so curiously enough, to be a subject, there has to be something that is, that is sort of absolutely beyond you in certain respects. And I think that's really a, a very important thing. It's an, a, an important part for me of the wonderful, joyful abundance of, the, of all the many things that are not me in the world and such a deep reassurance <laughs> you know so the world keeps me from myself the world is too much with us says wordsworth but he's completely wrong we're too much with ourselves i think in our world we need to you know so so i think that there's something important for me and perhaps for some others too in that that engagement with the thing that is not you. It's perhaps a much more traditional philosophical engagement with what is thought of as the other or the not self, which is a which is a you know, it's something that comes up against you, but it's also a source of 
tremendous enlargement and possibility.